Straightest point. What's going on? How we doing? Awesome. So good to be here with you guys. I'm so excited. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Kyle. I get to serve as one of the pastors around here. And if you call Traders Point home, uh, you know that this summer looks a little bit different. We're in a series, as we mentioned, called Our Next Guest, where we've been able to hear just from different voices and, and speakers. And hasn't it been phenomenal so far? Hasn't it been just rich to our soul? And while I'm not a guest, Traders Point, uh, they tried to te- treat me like one. They asked me to submit a bio. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know if I have ever done one of those. What do I include? What do I leave out? I think I spent more time trying to write a bio than I did working on this message. Which I don't know what it says about what you're getting ready to hear, but we'll, <laughs> we'll see. No, but you know that there's a number of changes uh, just around the summer and rhythms and, and everything that's taking place just here at Traders. One of those things um, that are happening that we want to let you in on is the fact that we're going to have some service time changes beginning on August First, okay, so um, for our Northwest campus and for Traders Point Online, our morning services are staying the same. Nothing's changing uh, with them. Those will stay at 9 and 11. But for our West campus, for our downtown campus and our North campus, we're moving our 9 a.m. service just to to 9.15. So just a few minutes back, uh, the 11 a.m. service will stay the same at all of our campuses. But then we're also excited because we are bringing back our 5 p.m. service starting on August 1st as well. We know that there are a number of people who cannot make it to a morning service for a number of reasons, whether that is work schedules or family dynamics. So we want to be able to create a space where people can come together um, in the evening to be able to hear God's word and to connect with others. So if you have questions about that uh, and what those look like starting on August 1st, you can visit our website uh, for all of those details. Um, Also, um, I just want to go ahead and again say happy Father's Day to all of my fellow dads who are out there. Happy Father's Day to my dad. Um, I love you. And guys, this is our day. This is our day. So dads, if you want to go home and if you want to take a nap, do it. If you want to just relax and watch some sports today, do it. And if your wife tries to ask you to help with something around the house, and if you want to tell her no, don't do that. (laughs) Do not do that. Trying to give you just a little bit of wisdom here. Do not do that. No, but seriously, being a, a dad is, is awesome. There's so many memories that I have already of just being a dad. One of the, the, the best ones is just the day that we had our, our first child. I remember it like it was yesterday for, for many reasons, but there were so many things that went in into this. We had to be at the hospital pretty early. We had a scheduled C-section, and I remember telling our family, hey, we have to be there like around 7, um, but the procedure isn't until 9. So you guys don't have to get there until like 8.30, maybe 8.45. They were there at 6 a.m. <laughs> they beat us there. They were, they were ready. And it wasn't just immediate family. This was um, aunts and uncles and cousins and family friends, people I didn't even know. <laughs> and they were all just in this packed out waiting room. And they were doing everything except for ra- waiting. They were like eating food. They were uh, playing games. They, they were like taking bets on a whiteboard that was in there, like, the height and the weight, and even the, the, whether it was going to be a boy or a girl, because we were waiting to, to find out, which to this day has been the best decision we've ever made. Um, that everything but waiting. It was Vegas in there, pretty much. All right? And so I just I remember coming down the hall after our child was born and walking into the waiting room to give the announcement to this group of people who were waiting to hear what it was. And words can't even do it justice. I actually have a video of this that I want to share with you guys. So take a look at this.
That was my mom. She, she tackled me. The cheers were so loud. I kid you not. The nurses down the hall, they came into the waiting room. And they said, we thought the Colts were playing, and they scored a game-winning touchdown. <laughs> Let me just say, the way my mom tackled me, sister could have been on the practice squad for the Colts. All right. No, but maybe you remember like bringing your first child into the world or maybe you remember adopting for the first time. Even if you're not a parent, maybe you remember holding uh, your niece or your nephew or a younger sibling, uh, a friend of yours had a baby. And you just remember that special moment. But what I will say was for my family, it wasn't just the announcement that was the cause of the celebration. Okay, there were things that led up to that that made it special. I remember having conversations with family members and friends just about parenthood. Um, how my wife and I, Bree, we were looking forward to just creating these special memories with this child. I remember talking about what fatherhood actually looks like and just how I was getting ready to make all these mistakes. Um, but even in the midst of that, I was going to love this child unconditionally. So before they ever heard the announcement of it being a girl, what they heard was the, the heart of a father. They heard that there was this guy who hadn't met his child yet, who was getting ready to love this child unconditionally, no matter what. They heard the heart of a father before they ever heard the announcement of a boy or a girl. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me in Matthew chapter 3. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. All the, the, the verses will be up here on the screen next to me. But what we see in Matthew chapter 3 is an announcement. We see that there is this announcement that is made, and we see that there are these two groups of people who respond very differently to the same announcement. One group is able to see the heart behind the announcement. The other group sees something totally different. One group sees the heart of the Father, and the other group sees something else. So Matthew chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1. If you got it, say, I got it. I got it. All right, let's do this. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, in those days... John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, get this, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, he is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. So just to set the stage just a little bit, we got this guy named John the Baptist. The Baptist was his nickname, okay, it's not his last name, but he was known for, for baptizing people. He was baptizing so many people that people like nicknamed him the baptizer, and that over time turned into the Baptist. And so um, for our sake, we'll call him JTB, okay. JTB is the older cousin of Jesus, actually, and he is a prophet, and he had one job. One assignment, and his assignment was to tell people about Jesus, to prepare the way, to tell anyone and everyone about the coming of this Messiah. And he was shouting from the rooftops, hey, this man is coming, this man is here, and he's not just a man, he's a man that is greater than I am, he is God. So in essence, he is saying, God is here. That's what the announcement was. And the crazy thing is it had been 400 years since the last prophet spoke on behalf of God. And after all that silence, people began hearing this message that the kingdom of God is here and the inauguration is happening right here on earth. So let's see how this plays out. Let's keep reading in verse 4. It says, John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist. And for food, he ate locusts and wild honey. People from Jerusalem and from all of Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went to see and hear John 
And then look at this. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. All right, so clearly our guy, JTB, he stood out just a little bit. All right, he had a unique appetite, and he had like this weird fashion sense, I guess. Uh, maybe it's weird to us, but I feel like Gen Z could make camel hair trendy. Um, I'm just waiting <laughs> on a TikTok video of a 16-year-old dancing in a camel hair vest and it going viral. All right, youth ministry, let's make it happen. Just make sure that I get the credit for it. But nonetheless, despite his unique appetite and his unique sense of fashion, we can see these people just flocking to him. Like hundreds, if not thousands of people are coming to him to be baptized. And I don't know if you've ever seen um, a spontaneous baptism that we have at any of our campuses. Uh, maybe you've been a part of a spontaneous baptism here. Man, it is so special. I've been a part of several of them over the years, and it, it never gets old. Um, there are tears, um, there are prayers, and there's hugs, and there's more tears, and there's people coming forward, and they're just expressing their, their excitement. They're confessing sin, and they are... Um, professing their, their, their relationship with Jesus or Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And they didn't show up to church expecting to get wet that day, but they don't care because this moment is so important. It's just phenomenal. There's nothing like it. Well, take something like that and you multiply it by a thousand. And that's what we have here. And I think what we have a tendency to do is read a story like this and we can normalize it over time because maybe we get familiar with it and we just read about hundreds or even thousands of people coming and being baptized in a moment like this. But let me just tell you, this was not normal. All right, people, uh, Jewish people who were Jewish by blood did not get baptized in John's day. Do you know why? Because baptism was reserved for non-Jewish people who were converting to Judaism. So if you had a Gentile who wanted to become Jewish culturally, they had to be baptized. If you were Jewish by blood, which is what these people were who were getting baptized, you didn't get baptized. So them coming to be baptized and actually going through with it was their heart saying, hey, I realize that I'm as far away from God as a Gentile, and now I need to do something to get right with him. It wasn't normal. So something happened deep within their heart to say, okay, we need to get baptized. We need to profess that we see the heart of, of the Father. And so we're going to look at exactly what was in their heart here in a second that caused them to come forward and to be baptized. But before that, I want us to keep reading, and it's about to get spicy. So buckle up, all right? So let's look at verse 7. It says, but when he, talking about John the Baptist, saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Wow, that escalated quickly. Um, so all of a sudden, these religious leaders show up on the scene. And clearly, our guy JTB was not expecting them to show up. Uh, I think he was probably like in mid-baptism when this happened. And let me just say, I've, I've never dropped somebody when baptizing them before. I've come close, but I've never dropped somebody before. I'm so far shooting 100% when it comes to taking somebody under the water and making sure they come back up. But I like to think that John was so shocked when this happened that he's getting ready to baptize somebody in the Jordan and he sees them coming and he's so taken aback that he like drops them in the Jordan River and he tells one of his disciples, man, hold my camel hair, it's about to get ugly. And he begins to just go in on them. He calls them a brood of snakes. I don't know what it was like for you growing up, but when you call somebody out of their name, we was getting ready to fight. Like, those were fighting words. And he calls them a brood of snakes. And what I was thinking about when I was studying this 
was did the religious leader say anything back? Like, Matthew, or yeah, Matthew doesn't seem to imply that they did. He doesn't record a response. But I have a, a very hard time thinking that they just took those words on the chin and were like, well, I guess we're a brood of snakes. No, like, I think they retaliated with some words. I think, like, there was this instance where you got these two groups of people, John and his disciples, and then you got all the Pharisees and all the Sadducees together on this side, and they just began going back and forth. And the religious leaders would have had a lot of ammo on John. They would have, his diet, like, they could have called him a vegetarian. They could have said something. Like, they could have talked about him. I think it was like, remember in the 90s, the best era, by the way, when you had these classic movies with these epic scenes where you have two groups of people just insulting each other verbally, and it was great. Movies like, um, like Hook, where, you know, Robin Williams plays Peter Pan, and Rufio is the leader of the Lost Boys, and he just begins talking about Rob, or Peter Pan, and he's roasting him, tearing him up. And then all of a sudden, Peter Pan stands up, and he's like, you lewd, crude, rude, bag of pre-chewed food, dude. And everybody's like, bangerang, Peter! <laughs> classic. Or one of my favorites, The Sandlot. Anybody remember the scene? Oh, you remember the scene where the people pull up on the bikes and they just start going at one another and then all of a sudden Ham is like, you play ball like a girl. And everybody's like, classic. If you have not seen this movie, get out. <laughs> no, nah, I'm kidding, kinda. Um, <laughs> no, but this is what I like to think happened in this scene. Some of you are looking at me like, you have way too much fun when you're studying scripture. I do, <laughs> because the Bible is real to me. It comes alive to me. I don't just sit and read over like they're just a bunch of words. No, these are the words of God. These are, this isn't just ancient literature. Yes, it's made up of different types of literature, poetry and narrative and history and biography, and they should be read that way. But the Bible is anything but old and boring. It is alive and active because the Spirit of God is alive and active. So when we read the Bible, we should read it as if the Spirit of God is in us, and it should come alive to us. All right, I'm going to get down off my soapbox. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. Um, where were we? Okay, yeah. John the Baptist calls them a brood of snakes. And then he says this, prove by the way that you live that you have repented and turned to God. In other words, he's saying a changed heart results in a changed life. That's a sermon for another day. Um, but what we're getting ready to see him say next puts everything into perspective. All right? Because in, in verse 9, I want you to lock in on this. If you have a, a highlighter or a pen, get ready to circle and underline some things. Because this really gets to the root of the problem that we're getting ready to see. Look at what he says next in verse 9. He says to the religious leaders, don't just say to each other, we're safe. For we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised and ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Circle, highlight, underline verse 9. He said, don't think that you can say to yourself, we are safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. I love the way um, the NIV puts it. He said, don't think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. This was the problem right here. 
the religious leaders' view of their father. They were placing their hope and their faith and their trust in their ancestor, Abraham, who much of Judaism was circled around during this time. And John the Baptist is saying, no, 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 you guys have it all wrong. You're placing your faith and your hopes and your heritage. And I'm trying to tell you about the heart. I'm trying to tell you about the heart of this father. I'm trying to tell you about somebody that you can have an actual encounter with. You're placing your hope and your faith in the wrong things. There is the heart of the Father that you can actually experience. And that's what I'm pointing all these people to. And 2,000 years later, the message is still the same. As a collective body of people who have the very spirit of God in us, we have been tasked with the responsibility of saying, hey, I don't just believe in a belief system. I don't just believe in religion. I haven't just heard. No, I have encountered. I have encountered the very heart of God, and he has changed me because that's what changes people from the inside out. And when people get a glimpse of that, they can't deny it because the truth is um, nonbelievers, they can argue with theology, they can um, bash the church. They can debate the validity of Scripture, which I've had plenty of debates with people over the years about. But one thing they cannot deny is somebody who has been radically changed by Jesus and has encountered the heart of God. They cannot deny that. Because it changes everything. It's tangible proof of a life transformation. And God wants us to know, hey, this is our responsibility to say, hey, I have not just seen or heard, I have encountered. And that's what John was trying to get these religious people to understand. One group of people, these Jewish people said, hey, we have encountered the heart of God. One people encountered, the other group of people were entitled. There was an encounter versus entitlement. And John is trying to get them to understand, no, we have a heavenly father that you can actually encounter. And the same thing is true for us. You know, um, one of the things that um, whenever I get together with my men's group, and I've been saying this to them from since we began, began meeting, and I'll say this to them periodically just as a reminder. Like, hey, whenever we get together, I want you to do two things. I want two things to happen. One, I want you to see more of God's character every time that we meet. I want you to leave here seeing more about the God that we serve, more of his holiness, more of his justice, more of his love, more of his compassion. Because when you see the character of God, then you begin to see yourself rightly. And the second thing I want them to do is I want them to fall more in love with Jesus. Every single time that we meet, I tell them, hey, I want you to leave here falling more in love with Jesus. I want you to not only love him, but to be loved by him. Because when you have this encounter, that's when change actually happens. And so what I want us to do is I want us to um, actually spend the remainder of our time looking at what the heart of God actually looks like. What do we get from this text that we can actually take away about the heart of God that not only exists in this text, but actually is anchored in the entire narrative of Scripture? And what I want you to do is I want you to, to take note of these. There's three of them that I'm going to get ready to share with you. But I want you to either write them down and put them maybe on a sticky note this week. Just live in them, all right? Because whether you've been following Jesus for 30 days or 30 years, you can be reminded of the heart of God. And you can live in these beautiful words uh, of truth. Maybe you um, put them in the notes on your phone and make it your lock screen. Do something to where you can be reminded that this is what God says. And we're going to look at what was it about John the Baptist's words that so beautifully depicted the heart of a father that caused one group of people to respond by giving their, their lives to him. So here's the first thing. The heart of God says, I am here. I am here. Now this may sound very simple, 
But this is anything but simple. Do you know that that is the essence of what Scripture tells us? That from Genesis to Revelation, it is a story about a holy God who seeks to dwell with his people to remind them that he is not far off, that he is not distant, that he is not rogue, that he's not just out in the cosmos, but that he's actually with them. And he spends years pursuing them and chasing after them. Even as they rebel and walk away, he constantly reminds them, hey, I'm not, I'm not far off. There may be some consequences to your rebellion, but I am still here. I am still present. And God wants us to know that very thing today. Even as Christians, we have a tendency to believe that um, or even disbelieve that there are moments when God is here. If we're honest, there's times where we question. There's times where we doubt. There's times where we wonder, God, are you still there? God, are you with me? And as I was looking at this, I was starting to think, what are some of the reasons why we question and we doubt? And there are a number of reasons. I think one of them has to do possibly with hardship, where we face um, moments in life that are extremely tough and extremely difficult. And maybe that's you. Maybe you've experienced um, pain or loss, and you prayed to God and you asked him to show up. You asked him to heal. You asked him to save. You asked him to provide. And it feels like you didn't hear anything. And over time, what you mistook, mistook as, as silence eventually turned into a view of absence. Maybe it's father wounds. And growing up, your father um, wasn't there either physically or emotionally the way that you wanted him to be. And today, a day like today is, is, is honestly a little hard for you. Because your view of a father is one who is distant and cold and absent. And you have transferred that picture on to your heavenly father. And the concept of, of a good father who is present is just, is just really hard for you. Um, can I just say that um, those are very real experiences that have very real effects, that come with very real feelings and emotions. And I would never discount or minimize somebody's experiences or the reality by just telling them to have more faith. But what I will say is that even in the, the midst, in the reality of an absent earthly father, there is a heavenly father who is madly in love with you. There is a heavenly father who is, who is omnipresent, meaning that he is everywhere at the same time. And if that is true, that means that he is with you. What I will say is that even in the reality of pain and loss and hurt, we have a God, a heavenly father who says, hey, I am close to the brokenhearted. I am near to them. What I will say is that even in moments where we don't feel like God is present, we don't feel him. He has given us everything that we need in his son and in his spirit. Jesus said himself, anybody who has seen me has seen the father. So what that means is that uh, we can determine that God loves us because Jesus died for us. So if we have seen Jesus, we know that God is with us. And what God is saying is that I want you to, to, to run away from whatever it is that you're running to, to try to fill that void, to try to gain approval and validation, the things that you're trying to use to cope with the, the absence of, a, of, of a, a heavenly father, or maybe you feeling like I'm absent. And I want you to actually run to me because I am here. You know, one of my favorite things uh, about my day is when I get to come home, when I pull up into the driveway and I press the garage door button and I get to walk into my house because it's like clockwork. My two girls come sprinting around that corner and they're like, Daddy, and they give me this big old bear hug around my legs because they're reminded that I'm here. 
that, I, that, that I'm not gone. They're reminded that I'm home. They're reminded that I, am, that I am with them. They don't run away. They don't run away in shame or in fear. They run to me. And in like manner, God wants you to know that he is here, that he is with you. And he doesn't want you to run away in shame or fear or guilt or to wallow in sin. He wants you to run to him. That's why John the Baptist said, repent of your sins and turn to God because God is here. So that's the first thing. I am here. The second thing that he wants us to know is to trust and obey. All right, trust and obey. And if we are honest, um, at least for me, this is probably the most difficult because we got this thing in our life called pride. I don't know about you, but I got a lot of it, all right? And pride results in a lack of trust, and a lack of trust results in disobedience. Okay, y'all are probably holier than I am, but I struggle with disobedience, all right? I'm just be honest. Like, there have been moments in my life where I haven't always obeyed God, where I've told him, God, I promise you this is the last time. And I feel like God was up there like, bro, you said that the last time. But what happens is, when we encounter the heart of God, we experience this beautiful thing called grace. And it is the grace of God that leads us to repentance. All right, some of you are looking at me like you don't believe me. Um, there's this beautiful scripture in Titus chapter 2. And it says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Everybody say it with me, all people. All people. It teaches us to, it, meaning God's grace, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You know what that means? That means that when we encounter the heart of the Father, we experience his grace. And the sin that we once engaged in, that we found so pleasing, is no longer pleasing to us because we know that it breaks his heart. So it's God's grace that actually transforms us and leads us to turn to him and to trust and obey him. Um, I, I, had a, I had a friend who, um, he struggled with an addiction. And he struggled with, um, with pornography. And he actually invited me in to help hold him accountable. And what would happen, I found a lot of times, is he would often text me or he would call me late at night um, after he had, had failed and after he had given in, and he was like, man, I did it again. Um, I just keep doing this over and over again. And I had a chance to, like, speak words of encouragement, but also hold him accountable to encourage him, to challenge him, and to remind him that he is not his sin, but God has so much more for him. But this will continue to happen um, time and time again. And then I end up calling him out. I'm, saying, I'm like, man, you keep calling me after it happens. What would happen if you started calling me in the middle of the temptation and saying, hey, man, I'm, I'm struggling with this right now. I just need, I need some accountability. I need some help. I need some encouragement. And he began to do that. And I saw this, like, shift. I saw when he started to, to turn the corner where one time he was in the middle of getting ready. He, he was feeling tempted. And he texted me. And he was like, hey, bro, I want you to know that I'm feeling these feelings. And then he said these words that stuck out to me. He said, but I want you to know that I believe that Jesus is better. And those words, like, just, like, hit me like a ton of bricks so that from that point on, anytime he texted me and saying he was feeling tempted, you know what I responded with? Jesus is better. Hey, I know, like, I know you were feeling those things. Jesus is better. And I don't know, somebody here may be struggling with something. It doesn't have to be an addiction. It could be anger. It can be pride. But maybe the trust and obey portion is the one that you're sticking on your sticky note. And in parentheses under trust and obey, you just need to write, Jesus is better. And that needs to be your reminder. Because the reality is, as a dad, I want nothing more than for my kids to trust me. 
and I have some disobedient kids, <laughs> okay? I'm not a pastor who's going to sugarcoat it and be like, my kids are just so angelic and they're perfect. Like, no, they are disobedient. But what I try to tell them is, hey, I see things that you don't. Like, I know what's best for you, and I want this for you. I'm not trying to take the joy away from you. I'm trying to help you to have joy. And what I want for my children is for them to, to say, hey, I may not understand. I may not know why, but I believe that what my dad says is best. I believe that he is better. I believe that what he says is better for my life. And that's exactly what God wants us to know about how he wants us to trust and obey him. All right, so we have um, I am here. Trust and obey. And the third thing that God says is you're mine. That's what we get from this text. I am here, trust and obey, and you are mine. These are the most beautiful words by our heavenly father, that we are his, that we are God's children. Do you remember what John the Baptist said to the religious leaders after he told them not to, um, to think that Abraham is their father? He said, God can make children of Abraham out of these very stones. Meaning, those come a dime a dozen. Like, God can make that out of, out of anything. What I'm trying to get you to understand is that you are so much more than that. He's trying to get them to understand that you are actually children of the living God. That you are his son. That you are his daughter. And that not only that, but that he delights in you. Okay, Look at Matthew chapter 3 again, because what's getting ready to happen is after all these people get baptized and after John gives the religious leaders a good tongue lashing, the person that John is preparing the way for shows up on the scene. And it's this beautiful picture because everybody who's in attendance gets to experience this life-changing um, words from God the Father. Look at what it says in verse 13. It says, then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. He said, I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. So why are you coming to me? And then Jesus responded and said, it should be done. For we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. And then look at this. It says, after his baptism... As Jesus came out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son, who brings me great joy. This is my dearly loved Son, who brings me great joy. Do you know what's crazy about this? Right after Jesus' baptism, right after this happens, he's led out into the, the wilderness where he experiences the temptation of, of the devil. And from there, Jesus begins his ministry. From there, everything just kind of like takes off, right? But what that sa says to me is that before Jesus ever did anything, he had the approval and the validation of his father. Before Jesus ever walked on water, before Jesus ever fed 5,000 people with a few pieces of food, before Jesus ever raised anybody from the dead, before he ever healed anybody, he heard the heart of his father. He heard the approval and the validation and the affirmation from his heavenly father, knowing that before he even does anything, before he performs anything, the father already loved him. It was the heart of his father that he got to encounter, which changed everything and gave him a foundation to live from. 
Um, some of you uh, may know a little bit of my story. Most of you um, don't. But I was born and raised right here in, in Indianapolis, and uh, I went to school just right down the street from our Northwest campus at Pike High School. And um, for the majority of my life, as long as I can remember, um, I played sports. And I excelled and gravitated towards, towards basketball, and basketball was just a huge part of my life. So much so that it really started to become like my identity in an unhealthy way. And I had some amazing parents who uh, made sure that I was balanced with academics, but nonetheless, like, you could not find me anywhere but a basketball court. I grew up unchurched, so most of my Sundays were spent playing in an AAU tournament somewhere. And um, I was blessed to receive a scholarship to go on and play basketball in college. And I remember just being in college and getting to this very dark moment in my life where I began just like grabbing for things that would give me meaning because basketball wasn't doing it. I, it was, uh, my season wasn't going the way that I had hoped for it to go. And uh, I just began just grasping for anything and diving into some unhealthy things and, and trying to, to cope um, with the, the, the pain that I was feeling, coping with the, the lack of approval and the validation and worth and value. And I'll never forget, I, was, uh, I came to a moment where I was like, well, maybe I'll consider joining a, a fraternity. And it was going to be the, the same fraternity that my dad had joined. And I'll never forget coming home from a, a break for school. And my dad picks me up from the airport. And on the ride home, I began to express, hey, I'm, I'm just like kind of thinking about joining this fraternity. And I will never forget the smile that just came across his face. Just thinking about the, 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 the thought of his son joining the same fraternity that he was part of, a part of, the legacy that was getting ready to happen. And he begins to just tell me about his experiences and, and start asking me all these questions. And it was just, he just felt proud. And I get back to school um, just a couple weeks later, and I'm just still in this pit. I'm in this dark moment where I'm like, man, it would not be healthy for me to try to uh, pursue this right now. And so I'm just going to table it. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll revisit it later. Um, but I'll never forget the thought of just that smile of my dad not leaving my, my head and just the sense of pride that he had. And I remember coming into my apartment and sitting on my bed and trying to muster up the courage to tell my dad that I'm reconsidering, that I'm thinking about that not pursuing this. And just debilitating fear was in the pit of my stomach. The thought of letting him down, the thought of, of disappointing him, I couldn't get over it. I couldn't even dial the numbers to his phone number. And I began to get emotional as I called him and just started, um, <laughs> he tried to just have, we just had some small talk for a moment. He's asking how the season's going. I'm just dabbling around the whole thing. I'm telling him it's good and it's not. And then I finally muster up the courage, just so emotional to tell him what was going on and that I was, I was thinking about not doing it. And I'll never forget his response. It got quiet for a couple of seconds and it seemed like forever. And he said to me, Kyle, listen to me. I love you. And I love you because you are my child. And it seems so simple, but those words just washed over me. And can I tell you, like, I just... The pressure just released and just dropped from me. And I remember hanging up the phone and bawling my eyes out, just, just crying uncontrollably, not out of sadness, but just out of relief. Because for so long, I had spent my entire life trying to gain the approval of, of my parents. And it wasn't even pressure that they had put on me. It was unwanted pressure that I had put on myself. But what I didn't know is that that would catalyze my relationship with God. I hadn't had a relationship with him at that point. 
But that, those words from my dad were just a microcosm of what my heavenly father thought about me. And I don't know who is watching or who is listening in this moment, but you have never heard those words before. And maybe you have spent your entire life trying to gain the approval and the affirmation and the validation of either your parents or your peers through your achievements or through your accolades or through your accomplishments. And it is exhausting. And it may be either for the first time or the first time in a long time. You need to hear, I love you. And I love you because you're my child. And you need to hear from your heavenly father that he says, and you're my child because of what has already been done. And what has already been done is the fact that Jesus went to a cross and he rose from a grave so that you can have an eternal relationship with your heavenly father so that you can experience the heart of your father. And that all you have to do is repent and turn to him. And when you do that, you will hear these beautiful, these amazing words. This is my child. And I love you. And I am pleased in you. Not because of what you do or what you have done, but because of what has already been done in Jesus. And I promise you, when you come to Jesus, just as you are, not trying to hide anything, but come as you are in sincerity and with a genuine heart and saying, this is who I am. I know that I don't have to spend my life trying to earn the approval and validation of other people. I already have it in you. When you do that daily, because we have to repent and come to God daily, you hear those three beautiful phrases. I'm here. Just trust and obey me. And you are mine. And there is nothing that you can do to change that. Let me pray for us. God, thank you. God, thank you that you are here. That you are not just a, a distant God that is off in the cosmos that we have to try to work our way towards. That we have to try to do enough good works or to earn your approval. You are here. You came in and through Jesus and you came in and through your spirit who dwells within us as followers of Jesus. And you reside with us. You are with us. You are close to us even in the midst of pain and even in the midst of, of, of absence from, uh, from earthly fathers who may not be in our lives. You are here and we can cling to that. God, I thank you that you tell us to trust and obey you. I, think, I thank you that you tell us that, that you are a good father who wants the, the most and the best for us. And that even when we think we know what's best, or we run to things to try to cope and to fill that void, you say, no, I am better. Trust in me. Believe in me. God, I pray over anybody who is here today who is wrestling with that, who is trying to find their identity and their, their satisfaction in things of this world or things outside of you, whether that be an addiction or whether that be pride or anger. No matter what it is, God, you tell us that you can heal us from that and that we can reside in you. So, God, help us to trust and obey. And then, God, help us to be reminded that we are yours. God, I pray over whoever needs to hear that, who is placing their, their faith in, in something outside of you, their heritage or, or whatever their heritage may look like. God, things of this world that cause them to think that they are safe, but in actuality, you want them to know, hey, you are mine and there's nothing that you can do to change that. God, remind us of your beauty. Remind us of your grace. And as we do that, we will say that we want more of you. God, help us to believe in even more of who you are, to see your character. And as that happens, God, we will experience life change, and we will go out and tell the world of an encounter that we've had with the heart of the Father so they can experience that same encounter. We thank you, and we love you.
It's in Jesus' name that we prayed. And the church said, amen, amen.